Again, my name is Reagan Gilliland, pastor of adult discipleship here at Christ United, and we are in week four of our Lenten series, Promises, Promises. If you haven't had a chance to catch our last few, we encourage you to go back and watch those either from our website or on YouTube. So when I first looked at this preaching calendar for the series, I realized I would be preaching two weeks fairly close together. I preached just the other week on the covenant with Abraham, which is totally fine. I've preached two weeks in a row when I first got here at Christ. I preached five weeks in a row, which was a new experience for me. But what I didn't pay attention to when I looked at the calendar was the text for today. In case you don't know, today's text is John 3, 14 through 21. And some of you may, may be familiar with a little verse in there called John 3, 16. Now, if you were to do a simple Google search image for this verse, you would find some lovely versions of this verse. And as in lovely, I mean terrible word art and horrible font choice. You would also come across images like this, a guy holding John 3.16 poster at a sporting event. I'm sure you've seen this as you've watched maybe college football on a Saturday. Maybe you remember when T, Tim Tebow had the black grease under his eyes and would have John 3.16 on his face. Or maybe you're really enthusiastic like this guy with a clown wig and a t-shirt with John 3.16 across the front. The one I really love is this boy at a sporting event, not holding up the sign, but it's just on the ground. Now, I thought about putting the marks under my eye like Tim Tebow, but between the mask and the glasses, I don't think it would be a very good look. But I really love the boy in the stands. Um, I feel like his family has season tickets to a game, and they all took turns holding up the sign 316 really proudly, and when it gets to be his turn, he's like, Ah, I'm good. <laughs> but I, you know, I kid, but this verse is really familiar. You've probably seen it again on posters, bumper stickers, t-shirts, telephone poles, just random places. And so people are familiar with it. They know the wording of it. There's different translations of it. Maybe you can't quote it for verbatim, but you at least know kind of the gist of it. So it's pretty daunting to preach on this scripture to try to unpack this because it's so well known. And then the added pressure is that the book of John itself is our senior pastor Chris's favorite book of all time, of course, followed very closely with the Twilight series. But so I was just thinking, that, oh my gosh, I've got to preach on John. I'm a little nervous. And by the way, Chris has never read Twilight, I'm pretty sure. So without further ado, I thought, let's go ahead and read John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that the, everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So if you were listening or reading along, which hopefully you were, there's a lot of questions. What's the thing with the serpent at the very beginning? God gave his only son, perish, eternal life, condemn, save, light, darkness. There's a lot going on in this passage. So I want to go ahead and start with the very beginning and talk about this serpent. Because if I'm being honest, when I read this, I kind of got distracted by this serpent part. In fact, I kind of fixated on it. I'm sure many of us don't remember that this comes right before the famous John 3.16. So let's address what we know about serpents. Spoiler alert, I don't know a lot. (laughs) But I do know a famous story that involves a serpent, and you may too, found in the book of Genesis chapter 3. So in the book of Genesis chapter 3, this serpent appears. This serpent is crafty in some translations. And quickly after this serpent has been introduced, sin and ultimately death enters into our story as well. And so from Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of the Bible, the serpent becomes the symbol of disobedience, of sin, a curse, and death. The serpent is certainly not a symbol or a creature to look to for healing or hope or life, which is why this callback in verses 14 and 15 to Moses and the serpent is a little jarring or confusing. So I thought we'd read Numbers 21 just to clarify and clear some things up for us. This is Numbers 21 verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, but the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. Amen. So what? So this symbol, a serpent that has been known to be a curse and not give life, suddenly is kind of saving people in this passage in Numbers. Now, don't get caught up with God sent serpents and people died. There's more to the story. But what I immediately see when I read this is that God provides a remedy to their suffering, to their pain, to their possible death. And so for now, I want to stick a pin, and we'll come back to that. 
So now it's John 3.16, very famous verse. But the two words I want to focus on are loved and gave. Let's talk about gave first. If you've been following us through this series, you're familiar with the giving nature of God through all of these covenants. God freely gives out these covenants based on God's love for us. In every story, God seems to give sign of new hope, new life, that's ultimately rooted in love. In the story of Noah, it's very clear God's intention is to give a fresh beginning, a new life to Noah and his family, hoping that there will be a ripple effect to other people. When we look at the story of Abraham, it was the story of giving land and ultimately then giving an heir, a child, to Abraham and Sarah. With Moses, God gave us instructions and rules in which to live by. It's in God's nature through and through to be one that gives to us. Now, Noah's story, the covenant was given without condition. Noah didn't have to do a single thing. God promises never to flood the earth. And the story of Abraham, while there are some conditions a little bit later on, when God first calls Abraham, God tells him what he's going to do and doesn't say, but first you need to do all of this. And with the Ten Commandments, while they were a list of expectations to live by, God was really giving them so they could have a better life because where they came from was not good. So our God without a doubt is one that gives and is not above giving of God's self. And all of this is in the name of love, really. Speaking of love, for God so loved the world. Now when I read this, I just don't say loved. I say loves the world. It's this ongoing, never-ending love. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus dies over and over again. I believe Christ when Christ said it is finished. But God's love for us is so deep and so everlasting that, of course, this verse would make me think it continues to happen, that God is actively loving us. That is God's nature, too, to give and to love. God is love. And more than anything, God wants us to know how much we are loved and that we are claimed by God. We see that in the story of Noah and Abraham and Moses. God is always saying, you are my people and I am your God. Everything God does is, is, is an act to draw us closer and into a deeper relationship. And I have to point out that God moves first. We know that we love because God first loved us. That's from 1 John. And so whether big or small, we see God come toward us. Now in 316, it talks about perish. <laughs> and we, we see that God does not want us to perish. And I see that to be true through all these covenants and hundreds of other stories in the Bible. God does not desire us to suffer. God does not want us to have pain. God doesn't want us to struggle. And this is not me saying, well, if you're suffering or struggle, then you must not love God enough or God is punishing you. That's not how our God works. What I'm saying is that the God I know and love is the one that wants to provide ways for us to get out of suffering. God desires us to have a life that is overflowing, that is abundant. And these promises, these covenants are a way of God reaching out to make sure we have a better life. 
And in this particular instance, we see that God sends God's self. Christ comes to us because the suffering and the sin that has plagued us is too much. And Christ came to deliver us from all of that. So that kind of helps answer the next portion when it talks about judgment and condemnation. The covenants before Christ were pretty radical, but this new covenant of God becoming one of us is mind-blowing. I mean, think about God came to us as a baby and then lived among us and then died for us. I mean, what kind of God that wants to condemn comes as a baby? (laughs) What kind of God that continually receives those on the outside, those on the margin, would want to condemn? When I read the stories of religious leaders trying to corner Jesus or thinking they'll know how he'll answer, and then they end up being shocked because his answer is always so full of love and forgiveness and grace, it kind of makes me chuckle. Of course, Jesus asked people to sin no more. Absolutely. There has to be a change. But the way in which Christ goes about it is different. There's a lot of assumption and and condemnation and judgment. There's this thought that that's how it was going to be, that it was going to rain down and that that there'd be death. But Jesus seems to want to bring life. Very different than what was expected. I mean, God came to us. I'm going to say it again. God came to us, became one of us, lived among us. It's not a God that wants to condemn. That's a God that wants to save. All along, these covenants were an outpouring of God's love and how God wants to save us. And Jesus, this covenant with Jesus, is the ultimate evidence of that love. Now, in these last verses... I'm not quite wrapping up yet, so don't get too excited. There's this talk about light and darkness. So chapter 3 of John, there's a larger story going on. Jesus is having a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus is intrigued by this Jesus fellow, and so he sneaks out in the middle of the night to have a conversation with him. So Nicodemus is literally in the dark. And Nicodemus is a little confused with the language of being born from above and descending from heaven. Honestly, it makes me feel a little bit better that Nicodemus doesn't have it all figured out because I still have questions and sometimes doubts about all of this as well. But here's what I know. Jesus entered into our, into our darkness. Jesus entered into our lostness, our inability to see or hear clearly. And we know that Christ light drives out darkness. And so for Nicodemus and for us, we can choose to step into the light, to grab hold of the light, to accept the light. It isn't for God so loved the world that he demanded us love his son. It's this giving and then hoping that we will receive it. And we see this consistently throughout scripture more specifically through the covenants that we have studied, that God was always giving freely and it was up to us to receive and to follow through. The covenant stood, God's word promises, all of that continues to stand, it remains. And it's up to us to accept it. I'm so thankful that we have a God that doesn't demand or courses into relationship, that this love is freely given and we get to accept it. 
We don't have to live in the darkness. We have a way out. So I want to come back to that serpent part that I talked about in the beginning. So again, the serpent stood for something that was cursed and signified death. And so did the cross. The cross was this awful, abhorrent symbol. There was nothing good that came from crosses. It was something that represented most of the time criminals, the worst of the worst. It was a horrific way to die. It was all about death. When you saw a cross, you thought of death. And then we have Moses that lifts up this staff with the serpent that usually represents death, and people had to look at it. And from that cursed thing, that cursed serpent, they had life. And so for us, we have to look up and see the cross for what it is. See its entirety, that it was this awful cursed thing, but now it represents life. And so Jesus had to be lifted up on this cursed thing in order to give us life. And we are saved. God redeemed what was cursed. And so now this cross, when we see it, at least I do when I see it, I think that represents life, not death. God is all about life. I think God proves time and time again the links that God is willing to go in order for us to have life. God gave the ultimate sacrifice so we could have life. Noah was told by God, I'm not going to flood the earth again. No more death from that. And now new life will spring forth. Abraham was told, look, your name is not going to die out. There will be new life from you and descendants more than stars. Each star signifies life. And Moses was given 10 commandments that would help the Israelites not suffer or perish, but have new life, a new beginning. John 3.16 tells us that we can have eternal life. Life is brought forth from death. So friends, this covenant is ours to have. It was given. It required so much. The ultimate sacrifice. But now is ours to look up and see and say yes and believe. And from this covenant in Christ, we have so much hope, healing, redemption, life, salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Thanks be to God.